that this is how I started to drink. Oh, and I was cheating on my husband. I was miserable. I would wake up every single morning and say, I can't do this anymore. And I'm not going to do this anymore. And then by that afternoon, I was drinking again. I couldn't even make it to the evenings anymore. Uh, I was just, I, I knew that I was a full-blown alcoholic. Is that- Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Awesome. Okay. Well, welcome back to another episode of From Darkness to Life. I'm flying solo today in the Plugged In Media Network studio. It's kind of lonely. It's a little cold. I'm missing my cohorts here, but I have one on Zoom. And Rick is joining us today from Calgary. He's up there uh, kissing babies, doing things up there, shaking hands. No, just kidding. He's up there fighting the greasy, slippery roads, just like we're doing here in Medicine Hat, and it sucks, but winter is finally here. Rick. For sure, up here trying to, uh, looking at some opportunities for OCJ to expand, so excited for what the future holds for us so you're not just up there crushing mr sub i'm not saying i'm not doing that but it isn't my (laughs) solo it it isn't my only reason for being here wonderful wonderful get that punch card filled well sub a day man keeps (laughs) uh well no it probably gets the doctor here quicker actually that's right but whatever i'm well considering what i used to pump into my body a sub ain't gonna kill me if the Mm -hmm. other stuff didn't absolutely (laughs) <laughs> cool. So uh, today we are joined with a wonderful guest who I just had the privilege of meeting this morning. Rick's known her for a while. Joanne, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I should probably mention that I'm going to be spending the winter in California crushing oh. In-N-Out burgers. You should not You should not mention that. <laughs> we should probably uh, talk to In-N-Out Burger and Mr. Sub after the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, somebody owes us money, right? Cool. You go down there every winter or is this first time or what's that look like, Joanne? No, this is the first time we bought this crappy little trailer and my husband renovated it and built an office in it for me. And we're just going to go and YOLO around California, Nevada, Phoenix, wherever we end up. Nice. This gives me a wild idea for our little trailer we just bought, Rick. Maybe we should go on a road show for the winter. Like a legit mobile podcast studio. Yeah, absolutely. I think Starlink makes it super easy. Another plug. Starlink. (laughs) Elon's got a ton of money, right? We can hit that for sure. (laughs) Uh, Right on. Well, welcome to the show, Joanne. And uh, I know little bits and pieces of your story from from talking with Rick, but like we always say in this studio and, and in our everyday lives, it's your story to tell. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, it is a story. That's for sure. I, well... I am a recovered alcoholic and an addict. I began my career uh, as an addict and an alcoholic at 14. I, um, I, okay, so I was one of those kids that was very introverted and never felt like I fit, you know, that same old story that we hear all the time. And for me, I was sitting outside of my junior high school and this girl came along and said, hey, want to come and smoke some weed? (laughs) And I said, okay, because nobody ever talked to me. And I was so excited that somebody was paying attention to me. 
And then she introduced me to her friends who, um, well, that's when I got introduced to boys. <laughs> I think that was one of my DOCs. But uh, yeah, these Ryan's, guys. Ryan's too. <laughs> Purses and boys. <laughs> Go on. Well, they were they were like me. They were kind of outcasts and and they were drinking and and doing drugs. So I drank and did drugs. And and I've heard so many speakers talk about how the first time that they drank or used that that they felt like finally they fit and mm -hmm. it wasn't like that for me. It was being around people and that were the same as me that gave me that that rush that that feeling of connectivity i had a girlfriend that i met right around that time and she was one of those drinkers where the first time she drank she was drunk like i had to clean up after her all the time and i wasn't like that i think that i grew into it with time i, I think that mine was because I, I kept using, because I wanted to change the way I felt. And I ended up running away from home because to me, hanging out with these people was more important than my family. So my, my mom caught wind of me hanging out with these hooligans and tried to shut that down and I not having it. So I ran away from home. So I ran away from home at 14, not because I had this um, horrible family. I had a great family, but because I just needed to be accepted. I needed to be around people. And then, um, well, of course, the boys as well, too. They helped fill that void that I seemed to have. And, and so as a 14-year-old girl living on the streets, you know, you can only imagine what 14-year-old girls living on the streets go through. So the drugs got a little bit harder. The drinking got a little bit harder. And I actually had a police officer try to drag me off the streets and pull me home because he knew I didn't fit. And he's the one who said to me, the kids that you were running with are trying, they're on the streets because they have abusive homes. Like they're being beaten. They're being molested. They're, they're, they needed to run. And you're here why <laughs> you have a great home so he dragged me home to my parents but it was it was too late i was i was gone um by that time with a lot of the substances i was starting to already become uh addicted so by the time i was 18 i ended up in vancouver uh, with a girlfriend of mine who i'm still best friends with to this day her and i ran away from vancouver to try and become rich and famous and ended up on the streets out there but um, I ended up actually with this Chilean Coke dealer and that's a whole other story <laughs> and that started off a, a whole new thing for me. So by the time I was 21, I was noticing the people around me were dying, right? Some harder things came on the scene and, and, uh, I mean, I, I admit I had some good times. I worked at this nightclub where all of the famous people went, like Johnny Depp and Bon Jovi, and I just, I thought I was a rock star. But at 21, I realized I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I remember sitting on the couch and uh, I had a buy set for the next morning and I, and I said to my girlfriend, if I go get this tomorrow, I'm gonna die. Like I knew I was on the edge. So I quit. I thought, okay, well, the, the drugs are the problem. So let's get rid of that. 
<laughs> it was a struggle. I ended up having to come home to Calgary to really get away from it, but I continued to drink and that continued to progress. Wow. And this is all yeah, like before the, the age of Ryan story. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, really? It really is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So I, you put the booze down and then picked up the other stuff harder. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And ran with the white stuff for a year and a half without alcohol and nobody seemed to be any wiser and things were going really well. I was really good at painting that picture that things were going great on the outside. Everybody thought it was going amazing. Yeah, for me too. I mean, when I came back to Calgary, I ended up, uh, well, I got, I, I got pregnant. <laughs> Not the uh, same as Ryan. <laughs> Not the same, no. But from there, I ended up building a business and getting married and having a family. So on the outside, I looked, I looked great. Mm -hmm. I looked like I was really, really doing well. But the drinking was progressing to the point where, with, even with my pregnancies, because I've I've had three kids, that I knew that it was a problem because it was so hard to be sober mm -hmm. when I was pregnant. In fact, with my first daughter, I I didn't know better. I was young and I did do some drinking, uh, through that pregnancy. And she, when she was born, she did have some developmental disabilities and, and we never gave her the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome because that's, that will, it's too stigmatizing for her. And I don't know, I worked with some professionals on it and that the guilt and that I feel over that is, is incredible. Uh, but the other two pregnancies I managed not to, but it was after my second child was born when I went to my first AA meeting because I knew that if I picked up a drink again, that I was going to end up right back where I started. Mm. And when I was in the hospital with her, my husband came in and, and told me that a friend had called from back in the day and the Chilean boyfriend that I had died. Oh. So I left the hospital. I went to his funeral and paid my respects to his mom and then went to my first AA meeting. And it was terrifying. <laughs> Isn't that the truth, hey, Rick? Yeah, they, they uh, usually are. <laughs> uh, but it, the, no, no, I mean legit. This one was in the hood. <laughs> and there was chairs being thrown. Oh. And I heard stories of guns being pulled. And, and it was old, the, the kind of meeting where they say, uh, just put the plug in the jug. Right? Oh, yes. Don't drink no matter what. So what, where where geographically was this hood? In Calgary. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to venture a guess because I believe I grew up in that hood. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can say the meeting name, but it's no, quite it, famous here in town. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, I, I grew up in the area, so I'm well aware of what it is. Okay. All right. Good. Then you know that one. Yeah. So anyway, I left the meeting and I went and drank. I go figure. And I continued to drink right up until I was 34. Oh, I was a hot mess. I progressed so to, like, to the point where the night of my bottom, I was out with my business partner and a bunch of colleagues. And I was just going to have a couple, you know, that yep, story, right? And then, of course, I have that couple and and the whole body thing starts. And next thing I know, I'm waking up the next morning and she's telling me how I had her in a headlock 
trying to get my phone away from her because I wanted to phone my boyfriend who was the douchiest of all my boyfriends <laughs> and I'm married. Right. <laughs> and I was, Oh, I was, I was so ashamed. I mean, this is in front of all of the, my colleagues and I was just that this is how I started to drink. Oh, and I think I wet the bed that night and I, it was just, a mess. I was cheating on my husband. I was miserable. I would wake up every single morning and say, I can't do this anymore. And I'm not going to do this anymore. And then by that afternoon, I was drinking again. I couldn't even make it to the evenings anymore. Uh, I was just, I I knew that I was a full-blown alcoholic and it was, it was time to get some help. Wow. Well, that certainly sounds familiar to me. I think your, your story is a bit of a hybrid of both me and Ryan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the and the other substances were starting to kind of come back on the scene too, and and I knew that AA was around. I like I knew there was help. I knew there was programs because uh, that girl who I met. Remember the girl that uh, was got me outside of the school there. Yeah. Well, she ended up pregnant at 16 and had to go into uh, another fellowship. And so I learned about it. Every time I'd visit her, she had all these books and and pamphlets and stuff laying around. Uh, I think she left them laying around for me. (laughs) But I knew. I knew that there was a place to go. And I went to a different meeting. And that was really, there was couches and lamps and, and, you know, women that were business women it just felt i don't know it felt like it fit um and there was a really hot guy there too (laughs) that kept me coming back for a while (laughs) whatever it takes Exactly. exactly yeah actually that girlfriend of mine came into town because i told her hey i've been going to these these meetings and she went out for coffee with me afterwards and that guy came over and was talking to me and as he left she said to me you stay away from him no old timer should be looking at a newcomer the way he's looking at you and i was like yes she's looking at me <laughs> oh man so I followed him around for a while and he ended up introducing me to my first sponsor so keeping in mind i'm 34 years old and uh, I wasn't doing anything. I was just sort of around the rooms chasing all the boys. And then in walks this girl who's supposed to be my sponsor. She's 18 and looks like Barbie. And I thought, what is this child going to teach me about living my life? And she's still one of my best friends to this day. She was incredible. She she, she sat me down and, and read the book line for line with me and had me in book studies and and had me in commitments and and just had me involved really taught me about the book wow that's amazing and how many times do we hear that story or similar stories that somebody walks into a room and you're like what am i going to learn from this person yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they end up being one of the best teachers yeah, yeah yeah no that that really started a journey i um i managed to get some good recovery behind me and and even to a point where i was leading book studies i mean they had me sponsoring i i was i was in i was all in the unfortunate piece was that i was an atheist and i talked to everybody and anybody i could about that topic and um you know i knew that it was important 
And then finally, we use that little backdoor trick that, uh, you know, make the group or make AA itself your higher power, right? And it says to pray, so pray. So I did that. But I never grew in my understanding. I never grew. I never, I wasn't continuing to seek and find and really tap a power greater than myself. I mean, I was so blocked off for, with that. And and then sure enough, later in life, resentments crept in, fear crept in. And um, I also had a, a surgery and and was disclosed that, you know, maybe pain medication isn't the best for me, but I was told you're going to need it. Just take it as directed. And I went to a lot of different people <laughs> to ask. And they said, yeah, take it as directed. Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I was in so much pain. So I, I took them. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to wait to take these so I can enjoy them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that kicked off uh, a couple of years where I, I did things that i i never thought that i would do i i can't believe it and especially some of these new things that are out there that are killing people i was doing it i and at this time i was in my 40s and i'm i'm chasing out chasing down these kinds of drugs it was not good it was not good and, and then i was also working in a treatment center <laughs> That was fun. <laughs> An active addiction working in a treatment center and then trying to go to meetings, but drinking in between meetings. And it got so bad that I finally just walked away from the whole thing and said, forget it. I'm just going to live miserably and die like that. I can't get sober again. I can't do this. So forget it. And I and I ended up traveling the world and just thinking I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. So why not enjoy myself? Uh, until one night I went out for dinner with a friend of mine who he and I got sober together and we, we stayed friends throughout the years. But when we went for dinner, he was talking about how he quit because it wasn't working anymore. Now I've heard that a million times that it's just, it stops working. In fact, it makes it worse. And something in that hit me where I, I knew that that depression and the blackness and the chaos and it was just making it worse. But how do I quit? Mm -hmm. How do I quit again? I mean, I tried so many times and and I phoned this old sponsor of mine, the the child. <laughs> and she took me to a meeting and I wasn't going to I wasn't going to come back. I was just going to sit there and sit and listen. And then when they said, is anyone coming back? I mean, my arm flew up. <laughs> so I guess I'm coming back. And and then I don't know. I stayed sober that night and and talked to a, another old friend of mine who's um, he's a big book thumper. And he and I got to work immediately. He did one, two and three in the parking lot of a Tim Hortons with me. But what was different is that I understood I understood that I have lost the power of choice, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm screwed. I am absolutely screwed. So perhaps there is a power, maybe, just maybe, that could help me and that I should just surrender, <laughs> just, just surrender and, and go through it. And then when we did my four, he said something really cool to me. And that is, I'm not doing an inventory to see what's wrong with me or how I can do better. I'm doing an inventory to see what's blocking me from this power. So I went 
all in on another set of steps, not, not to quit, to not to quit drinking and not to fix me or make life better. But I went all in to find a connection with a power greater than myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as a result, holy cow, <laughs> from atheist to absolute faith in something, I still don't know what, but absolute faith. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I was handing over parts of my life that I never thought I'd hand over. Like I stayed single. <laughs> that was a big one for a girl like me. Oh man, that's funny. That really reminds me of one of our guests last season we had on and he was talking about what well, was actually it was Brian Rick. Uh he was talking about how through coaching he recognized he didn't know what he believed in. He had put God in a box and moved it to the side of his world and, you know, wasn't even looking at that anymore. But through coaching, he talked about how his coach had reframed that for him and said, maybe it's not God you put in a box. You've put yourself in a box. Have you thought of it that way and enclosed yourself? So you're not open to believing in anything else. And when he started to look at things that way, it was easier for him to start, you know, tearing down those walls and starting to explore other things that he had pushed away for so long. And that's kind of what that reminded me of is, is him sharing that story with our listeners. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I had, I had so many moments where I would phone this, uh, this fellow crying because just the peace that I was feeling and the connectedness and, and how fear I'd had, I'd learned the ability to surrender and accept and all of these things that just weren't me. And I, um, when I turned three months sober, he and I were in Ireland at a convention and I ended up going on this bucket list trip. I've always, I ride motorcycles and I've always wanted to, you know, those drunken things. One day I'm gonna. (laughs) Absolutely. Yep. (laughs) Well, that was one of my one days is I want to ride the TT track at the Isle of Man. And I did it. I went over there. I just hopped over there by myself and rented a motorcycle, stayed for the night and burned around the T to T track. And then I ended up seeing this road that said not appropriate for motor vehicles. <laughs> and well, I'm still me <laughs> brap, brap, up the hill. I go. And it's this old ruined abandoned castle. And I just stood there on this cliff just absolutely thrilled with my life. I felt such a connection and it was, I was on fire, just on fire. Wow. At six months, I was down in Mexico with that friend that I got sober with who, who said to me um, that the alcohol stopped working. So I celebrated six months down in Mexico with, with him. And, and then nine months I spent down in Austin, Texas. There is some good recovery in Texas at uh, MotoGP, which was another bucket list thing for me. <clears throat> I spent my year, my year birthday, I was in Seattle at another convention. Uh, and then we get to my second birthday. This is where our story kind of takes a turn. <laughs> so uh, bear with me. Um, <clears throat> my second birthday, I was I was in uh, Kamloops uh, on a dirt biking trip. And I was lost in the woods, but having fun. And then when I finally got to cell phone service, I saw that both my mom and my uh, ex-husband and um, an unknown blocked caller had been calling me. And I just, I knew that something was bad. 
Um, so I phoned my mom and I couldn't get a hold of her. And then I phoned my ex-husband and I heard him say, she's gone, she's dead, and he killed his parents. And I, I couldn't, I could not make sense of what he was saying. Um, and then something about the police are trying to get a hold of me. And I, it, it just, so what had happened was my daughter, her boyfriend um, had, had killed her. Oh, and shit. we hadn't been able to get a hold of her for about five days. And I know because my mom had been texting me and I thought, oh, she's a mini me. She's in the wind, right? Like, just don't even worry about it. And and then, but he had also killed his parents and then turned himself in. So I'm trying to make sense of all of this. Like, it's crazy. You don't hear this kind of stuff. And and then all of a sudden it hit me. This This police officer phoned me after that and was like, we need you to come back to town. And, and it was real. Um, so, oh, sorry, <laughs> forgot to shut that off. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this, I, it hit me. My child has been killed and I need to go home and, and deal with this. And, and it wasn't just her, he killed his parents and, and I just hit my knees and I, I can't even, I can't even describe it. It, I, my first thought was prayer because I had had trained myself so much and I knew that the that prayer and and connect and and surrender and all I knew all of that. So that all hit me immediately. So I'm on my knees and I'm crying and I'm praying and I'm praying for my family, I'm praying for his family, I'm praying for you know him and and then finally it kind of came to me you got to get up, you got to get up and I and I got up and we went back down the hill. Um, I just sort of intuitively knew how to get the heck out of there. And and by the time we get to the truck, I'm in full-blown shock. And then as we're driving back into Calgary, the friend that I was with kept talking to me. He was atheist. And he's like, there is something. That was crazy. Because I guess when I did hit my knees, it, it's, it rained, but it was a perfectly sunny day. And I mean, rain showers happen. So this was my argument. My argument was rain showers happen. It, there's nothing, there is no God, you flounder around and then you die. And it was like that, the whole spiritual side of me and just slammed shut. There, there is no God. It, it was gone. And then I come home and we go through the whole process of the, the police and the funeral and the, and, and he'd also killed one of the dogs and slit my daughter's dog's throat. So, so and she survived. So now I'm fostering this dog and one of his, like his dog. And it was just crazy. And I had no God, no power, no nothing. It was gone. Like it, truly. I, and I think it was because I didn't feel any kind of connection. I had no idea that something had happened to her. So I knew that I had to come find a way back to that. Right? I had to get my way back to a God of my understanding. And, and uh, I did another set of steps and, and I'll be honest, it, it didn't really do a lot. This, it didn't work the second time I had to go and get some outside help. Mm -hmm. um, we also lost a dear friend and my stepbrother right, right around the same time. And one of the girls I sponsored relapsed died. <laughs> it was just bad, really, really bad for, for a long time. 
but I just kept plugging away. Ah, my home group, my home group showed up with food at her funeral. The whole half of the church was my, was recovery people. They, they all showed up. Yeah. And, um, they were there. They they held me through it, and I and I actually ended up leaving my home group. I felt really bad because I just needed to leave my home group and go to another meeting where I could sit at the back of the room and have the message carried to me. And and um, you know, I stuck really close to to my people. Those people with really good recovery, and I I don't know. I I made it through. I did it sober. I don't know how. <laughs> I I remember having an argument with my doctor about medication and saying, no, I have to feel this. Like I have to do this. I can't, I, I want so bad to be medicated, <laughs> but I can't, I, I have to do it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was, a, it was a long fight back, a long fight back. I did. I ended up doing, this is probably about a year and a half later. I was, I love speaker tapes like that you guys do. And I'm constantly listening to podcasts. And I found one lady, Astrid, and she did this emotional sobriety workshop. And I, and it was so helpful that I stalked her. <laughs> I stalked her and I found her. <laughs> and then I had a conversation with her and asked her to sponsor me. And uh, she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> But did anyway, you, I got, did you I tell got, her? Did you tell her that you stalked her? Yes, <laughs> she still said no. <laughs> yeah, maybe um, that's why she said no. That's probably why she said no. But she was very helpful. She connected me with uh, with a bunch of different resources, and and a bunch of us ladies got together and did her emotional sobriety workshop, and it was life changing. We went through the Tebow papers and compliance versus surrender and, and just all of these, these um, AA materials that aren't so talked about. And, and they really helped change me. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount was another one. I went through the Sermon on the Mount and that really helped me connect again to that power. And that's what was missing. As soon as that power came back, it was like I was, I had this bubble around me, this grief bubble. And when that finally burst and, and, you know, that power, I could connect with whatever it is again, then, then my life really, really took off again. I, I started to feel a little bit better. Wow. And yeah. just it's, go ahead, Rick. Well, it's, it's really interesting to me because, you know, is you know, I believe you're aware, like Ryan and I, um, we're, we're both 12 step you know, 12 step is the foundation for everything that we do, but we've also recognized too, that, you know, um, as amazing as that is, there's a lot of other contributing factors that led us through some tough times and led us to our place of recovery. But, um, I've, uh, recently I've kind of developed this new philosophy that, you know, it's, it's really a two-step process to recovery and that's finding your community and finding your purpose. Um, you know, and, and I think that the 12 steps specifically are just a means of getting to those two things, but how, how critically important they are. Um, and, and, you know, in your story about when you, when you uh, left your home group to go find another group, I can appreciate that the, the anonymity within the room, because there's no, 
you're not justifying anything. You're not talking to anybody. You don't need to, you know, they don't know why you're there. I, I, I went through a similar process at a difficult time in my life that I, I kind of abandoned my comfort zone and had to go outside of that just to have that anonymity so that I could, I could hear a message from different people from a different delivery. Like, you know, I love, I love my home group, but you know, I've heard their stories. I've heard their one-liners. I've heard their, it, it gets a little bit redundant, right? Like, I know what this guy's going to say if there's a new newcomer in the room. I know what his story is, right? You, you get to a point you can almost finish people's sentences for them when they start telling their stories. So there is something refreshing and special about, you know, the anonymity even within the program once you've been around for a while. So I really appreciate that in your story. Yeah. Well, as well, it's a, it's a different fellowship that works out of the big book, but more drug-specific. And I had at two years sober, I had probably one of the higher sobriety rates in the room. So I, I didn't want to sponsor anymore. I wanted to be sponsored. So to go to a room, you know, in, in, in AA that had a bunch of old timers, it, it was really nice just to sit in the back room, even with my friends, you know, going through grief like that, one of the best things that my people did for me was let me be me, met me where I was at. You know, they would they would drag me out and sit me in the corner and just say, just sit, it's okay. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> but just to be around other people with not expecting anything or needing anything from me. It, it's, uh, yeah, whereas a lot of my non-recovery-based uh, friends, they, they're like, they want to, they just push me too much yeah. and wanted to talk and tried to help and there's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And we hear that a lot. I think when people are going through different types of grief, right. And obviously your story, holy shit. Yeah. I was thinking the whole time, holy shit that, you know, (laughs) and that's all in the first two years of recovery, the obstacles you faced. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, it was because I had such a solid foundation The the morning that this all happened, I woke up that morning and I did my prayer and meditation and I did a little bit of work on a, uh, a, a tradition study that I was going to do when I got home. Right. So I was grounded. I was solid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really had that good base and I had the spirituality, even though it left me for a long time. The minute I got that news, the first thing I did was hit my knees and pray. And the coolest part was that I prayed for Dustin, the boy who killed her, right? And I prayed for him. And we ended up at his sentencing hearing. Uh, There's another, there's an old fella here in in my hometown who had killed his family during a blackout, right? Horrific. And he he served his, his time and got recovery and then has gone on to help hundreds of men right? He's just a beacon here. So I reached out to him and said, if Dustin is looking to get sober, because addiction is a big part of what what happened with him, he was in psychosis. Um, I mean, that's only part of it. He was still fully culpable and is now serving 35 years before parole. But I took this fellow's number and I passed it to his uh, defense attorney and to give to him. And my family was furious. Why would I reach out to help Dustin after he had done what he had done? I mean, everybody was furious. And the reason is, is because of Sandy B. You know, Sandy B, the AA speaker, 
Well, I had heard talks from him on forgiveness because he lost his child to to a murder as well. And and it's true, like he's one of us. He's an addict. He was a sweet young boy in the beginning. And then the drugs got a hold of him and he completely changed. And so he's one of us. He did something horrific and terrible, but why would we not offer to give him the same chance that we've had? Now, I don't think he's called that fellow, but my job is done. I I, I passed him a hand and gave him a number. And, and um, you know, and I've said that Corrections Canada has a program where they encourage victims and perpetrators to get come together because it's good for the victim for closure and it's good for the perpetrator for accountability. And I have said I will participate in that, but only if he's sober. Yeah. If he's if he's sober and really trying to to do something with his life, then I will. Yeah, there is a big lesson in forgiveness in all of that. This might be the most silent I've heard, Rick. I was just going to say there's not there's not much that leaves me speechless, but you are an amazing, amazing human being. No, that's recovery did that. That's what I've been taught to do. <laughs> you, can, right? you, can say, you can say that all you want. I know a lot of people in recovery and I know a lot of people that wouldn't let that go. And as I'm listening to your story, you know, I've got three kids and I'm like, God, I, I'd i like to think I could, you know, but I don't know. Like, you know, and, and, and by no means am I going to pass any kind of ju- like you know there's a few things in life that you can like empathize with people and there's some things that you just fucking can't unless you've been through it and i think that's kind of for sure one of those things you know um i won't even begin to pretend like i can possibly understand what that was like to go through mm-hmm. but i i i i hope that i would handle it with as much grace as you did but i don't know like i it's you're, it's it's very inspiring to hear that, and I know like we're currently working right now with uh, with corrections with the Department of Corrections here in the province and trying to be able to do that. And it's it's you know I can we we were sitting in the cell block with I think they had thirteen convicted murderers in there, and and I could look at every one of those men with empathy. But if it was my kid, I don't know that I'd be able to offer that still. And I know that means like I've clearly still got some work to do on my recovery, but, but it's the truth, right? And all I can do is, is, is tell the truth. My well, God, it's uh, pretty I, remarkable of you. I gotta be honest. There was a moment when they were, when he was being uh, assessed to see if he was respond criminally responsible or not. And there was a moment where I'm like, I still know people <laughs> <laughs> I can have this dealt with. <laughs> and that's kind of when I realized, oh, I better get on it. But you know what? I learned a huge lesson in resentment and forgiveness through all of this. So there was two, there was a, there was a boy, boyfriend, like I was dating someone when this all happened, who I was out in BC with. And when we came back to Calgary, I was obviously very depressed and and not myself. And he came to me and, and said the equivalent of basically, hey, if you're not going to put out... <laughs> if this is kind of who you are right now, maybe maybe there's this other girl over here and I'm like, get out, just (laughs) get out. (laughs) What get out? What else can I say? And I had so much resentment towards him and it was worse than the resentment that I had 
towards the man who killed my child. Like, how is that even possible? And I did a lot of work on it. It's because I allowed myself to have that resentment towards him. And the, and the longer we carry resentment, the harder it is to kind of root out. So whereas with Dustin, I knew that I had to do work on it immediately. I could not, like it, uh, every principle that I learned in recovery about resentments came to me and mm-hmm. it's, they're, they're deadly. They will kill us. So I can't, I can't carry that resentment towards Dustin because it, it will eat my soul alive. I had to find a way to forgive him and, and have compassion. And it's done a, a it, my healing uh, has been exponential as a result of it because they're not carrying any of that. Now I'm just carrying the grief and the pain, right? I'm not, none of that anger. I, I do recognize that too is, is I think sometimes the most deadly resentments that we, we get are the ones that creep up on you. If it is like, you know, a significant boom, punch in the face trauma of one sort or another, right? It's easy, it's really easy to identify the resentment. It's that, it's that slow creeping one that kind of just grows in you like a cancer that, uh, you know, whenever I, including my own, by no means immune to this, but um, it's, it's often easier to identify in other people, you know, working with, working with somebody to really root out some of the causes, but um, I think it's interesting that you put it that way. I don't think I've ever actually considered it that clearly. Look at you teaching us lessons. <laughs> well, I've had to learn them the hard way. That's why. For sure. And yeah. That's one of the things, Rick, I think you just pointed out something really cool about, you know, and maybe it wasn't conscious, but that whole piece about having guests on this show, we're by no means experts in anything, Rick and I. Uh, in our story, that's it. <laughs> but by being open and having guests on to share with our listeners and share with us. And, you know, we learn so much from individuals like yourself, Joanne, and other guests that have been on. And it's like Rick said just now, right? I've, I don't think I've ever looked at it that way. And I've had those moments for the last two years when somebody speaks and shares something similar that I've, I've heard many times before, but it's the way that, you know, something that you just said, the way you framed it, opens up Rick's ears and he sees something differently. And and that's what I love about, you know, all the listeners we have now, every guest is giving them a different perspective on, on something. Right. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all have our journey. We all have our lessons. And, and that's part of the, you know, when you share your story, where are you now? Well, as a result of go, reconnecting with this power and finding that I've learned to go to an even deeper level with surrender where I completely surrendered my love life after all of this and went staying single and just said, this is truly surrendered it. Mm-hmm. My dreams, like, man, this is who I'm traveling to California with and, and we're married and just love of my life. And then I surrendered my career because at the time of sentencing, I was in this horrible job and, and decided, you know what, I'm surrendering it. And I, and I quit. It was toxic. I did the right thing. and just see where I go. I love my job. I have purpose-driven employment. I get to run around and teach people about mental health and addictions. And, you know, like it's, it's amazing when, when we can go through that recovery process and really tap that inner, inner strength and, and that spirit, whatever it is, and then just surrender and, and, and lean into it all and how amazing life gets. Yeah. 
Wow. I'm happy now. They'll <laughs> <laughs> have my my days, right? Like I'll do they, my my husband will come home and I'll be crying because I've I've watched you know videos of her or whatever. It, but I know how to go into that place of grief and sadness, but then I'll oscillate back out. And and I mean I'm always gonna miss her. I, it's it's always gonna be there, but the i'm i'm doing much better and and i'm very happy and i feel her with me i'm taking her i'm taking pieces of her ashes with me down there like i still you know she's still there but it's it's better it's i think that's one of the things one of the beautiful things that does come to getting sober right is i know at, at least my story you know i used to numb that's why i used right i I thought I was using to feel, but I was in, in hindsight, I was using to numb. And so through that, you know, I denied myself. I, I was, I was numbing pain, but through that process, I also numbed all the joy and all the other emotions that go with it. Right. So, um, you know, getting clean, it's, it's like, learning how to be emotion like learning to sit in those emotions whether good or bad right and and uh as shitty as it is you know the the parable is like you know you you got to know bad times to appreciate good um coming into it you know fresh as a newcomer you don't feel anything so it, 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 emotions are very powerful especially when you've denied yourself the ability to feel them for 20 30 years and uh and it, it as shitty as it is it's kind of a gift and it's really inspiring to hear you talk about how you know you can you can sit in those not so positive emotions and and still be okay with it right it's, it really is a gift i think yeah yeah i don't mind it there's days when i wake up and i'm like oh i feel stressed or i feel blue <laughs> and i'll actually sit and feel it because <laughs> get to feel i mean that's amazing right um doesn't matter if it's good or bad i just where is it in my body and i don't know it's all that mental health stuff that i've been educating people on too mm-hmm. so i've got a lot of extra outside stuff that plays into it but it's it's really easy to educate other people to apply it to yourself as a yeah. completely different animal <laughs> yeah well i do know that i am i'm so i'm but six and a half years sober now and incredibly grateful incredibly grateful i don't i don't ever ever want to go back to that so i will continue to do my morning prayer meditation my evening review work with others got my home group got a service commitment got a sponsor you know just all of that kind of stuff that's so basic wow Um, so where are you now what are you doing now what uh what fills your cup uh, well, California is going to do a lot of good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do, uh, I do digital marketing, uh, and, and some digital fundraising for different organizations. So I'm working with one that, that they're, um, can I say them? Cause they're amazing. Yeah. Plug away. On a dime transformations help takes people coming out of recovery and helps them get purpose driven employment. Like it runs them through the process so they can find. And then you learn skills like our, our tagline is um, from uh, drug dealer to dog groomer. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly is an amazing guy. I've had the pleasure of meeting with him several times. Yeah. Um, I'm 
I have him queued up to be on our podcast as a guest. Oh, it's he's am- great. Yeah. yeah, I had breakfast with him a couple weeks ago. Um, amazing guy, amazing story, amazing program. Um, I, we've actually had a few people come to us, not through him, but he's uh, his name keeps popping up in people's story. Well, not his, but obviously on a Diamonds organization. Yeah. Keeps popping up in, in people's stories. So obviously there's something to it because everybody every everybody that i've talked to is a success story out of that program so there's got to be something to it so yeah we um, have yeah, for sure shout out to kelly and on a dime 100 <laughs> percent, i support that you'll love your podcast with them i had them on for another client that uh does mental health i'm going to say them to nomina <laughs> but uh the, he was fantastic fantastic yeah, I'm a huge, huge, huge supporter of him. So, so no, I just work and I got a puppy. <laughs> That's a handful. And uh, my kids and my family and my people and, and life is life is really good. I'm still obviously very active in the in the community. I currently have a sponsor who is or a sponsee who is a shining star. You know, those unicorns that come along every once in a while, those people who come in and actually get involved and get doing the work they actually do it yeah actually do it yeah yeah she's a big bright spot in my life these days that's awesome oh well i guess we're kind of getting close to our time here um yeah i guess if you had if you had five minutes to talk to the world what message would you give them oh forgiveness comes to mind I think that's the trick, right? Is when somebody cuts you off in traffic, uh, they probably really having a bad day. I should probably pray for them or, you know, offer them compassion. Or when some Karen comes at you out of nowhere, <laughs> right? Again, like just, wow, are you okay? <laughs> that would probably be my my big piece of advice is just there, but for the grace of God, go I, you know, just live your life the best that you possibly can and and forgive all those other humans that are struggling to live their lives i know like with especially working with newcomers i'm sure ryan can relate to this well you, whether it's clients through ocj or other other means you know there's a lot of people that get stuck blaming get stuck blaming trauma and people and things and times and fuck in, inanimate objects at, at like at, at points right and uh and it is very consistent right is is the key to getting past that victim stage is is to find forgiveness for it and, and i mean honestly like i think any i'm gonna hold on to this i'm gonna put a little asterisk beside this podcast i think and any any client that i'm dealing with that wants to stay stuck in that victim mode you know have them have a listen to this because if you know, if, if you can get past that with your story in the timeline of your sobriety, like, you know, it's, you know, even your timeline, right? Because I've, I've been around about the same amount of time as you. I've, like, I'm half, you know, six and a half years myself. So recognizing where I was at that one year, you kind of pass that pink cloud and you kind of, you know, well, my story anyway, right? I kind of plateaued a little bit sitting there waiting for the next big profound change. and to get hit with a trauma like that and still not come off the beam is fucking remarkable. And oh, uh, 
it would have made it worse though. Can you imagine oh, that kind uh, of grief and oh. pain and then dump alcohol on top of it? <laughs> for sure. Like that chapter would have ended with just the end, right? Like yeah. for, for sure. That's I have crazy. no doubt, but um, you know, anybody that wants to find excuses and things to blame for why they keep using and why they stay stuck and vulnerable like that. I mean, you've got a pretty profound story and a pretty, pretty inspiring message, I think. Thank you. Well, I will say this. I work with a lot of a lot of people and two things that I find I won't even work with is victimhood and entitlement. Those two things are, for me have been the hardest thing to break through with with a lot of newcomers. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Wow. Imagine in coaching, you see it a lot, too. Hey. Yeah, yeah. those things creep up quite frequently. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think for me, just to kind of reiterate, re can I even say the word reiterate get it, get it out, buddy. Yeah, I got it. I need another coffee, but you know what Rick was saying, that's, what's been sitting with me and, and I've jotted down a few catch a few big notes here from listening to you, Joanne. And it's that, that piece that Rick talked about as well. You know, um, anybody who is really struggling or justifying or using all these, you know, obstacles to justify their continued use or continuous relapsing or whatever that looks like in everybody's journey. I understand grief is different for everybody and you know, who's to say that other people couldn't get through a similar situation or I've seen stories that are nowhere near as impactful as yours. And that's what knocked, knocks everyone off the beam. But what I want to say for sure is this is probably one of the most amazing stories of hope and resiliency and that whole piece around forgiveness is, you know, anybody who listens to this, there is hope. You know, your grief, your experience, your trauma might be different, but there is hope to get through it a hundred percent. If you put in the work and you find the right community and the right supports, and you're willing to, to look at some of these pieces and not just point fingers at everybody else, there's hope and recovery is a hundred percent possible and probable and sustainable. And, you know, we don't have to go back out. No, no, we don't. Yeah. And again, I couldn't even imagine having gone back out. Oh. I, my life would be over, I'm sure, right? Whereas I'm sitting here now on the other side of it and and at absolute peace and and joy. Like I'm 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 I feel I I feel I feel like I'm on a pink cloud, but I know I'm not on a pink cloud because, you know, I I've got a lot of time that I've been feeling like this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. It is possible to be happy, joyous and free. <sighs> I just really want to thank you. I mean, you know, not to minimize any of our other guests ever by any means, but this, this has been a, a, a special episode for me. Um, mm -hmm. I've got a lot of takeaways from this as Ryan was very kind of a dick, but very quick to point out. I, not many times I'm speechless, but you <laughs> left me there a few times. So, well, um, thank you. Well, thank you. It helps me honor my daughter as well too. She, she, um, she'd want me doing this. She was very proud of me for getting sober and I know she wanted it for Dustin. They, she'd asked me for help for Dustin. And, and I know that it, she would be, she, she's here now with anybody who's listening, cheering them on saying, you can do it. <laughs> That's just the way she was. She's with you. Wow. That was heavy. That was a big <laughs> podcast. I'm tired from, from being so focused on listening and understanding your story that that's exhausting. 
amazing. And thank you so much for, for being, you know, it might not be that vulnerable piece for you anymore, but for our listeners and for myself, that's a huge show of strength, what you just did and sharing that massive story with all of us. Thank you so much for being on today. And oh my goodness. Thank you. I look, I look forward to being able to do, you know, to future opportunities with you. I think, you know, anything that we can do to support you, um, I'm, you know, I, I know I can think of like half a dozen people that we've worked with that could really benefit from you and your story. And I, I, I look forward to, uh, you know, this, this network of people that we, we have the privilege of, of building, um, relationships with. And yeah, I'm like, <laughs> I'm very, very happy with today's episode. I'm very thankful for it. Hey, well, thank you guys. Anything I can do to help too. I mean, I'm always happy to to talk to other people, especially if they're going through through grief or oh god, the loss of a child. I mean, it's it's horrific. Yeah. Wow. That's one of the things that we do say, right? And that's kind of how this all started. If uh, if this story resonates with anybody, any of our listeners, or any piece of it, please by all means reach out, and we'll uh, we'll try to we'll try our very best to put you in touch with people and support you. Because at the end of the day, like the the founding concept of everything that OCJ was is no matter what you're going through, we just don't want anybody to ever feel like they're the first person to go through it and they're alone. Um, you know, there's there's thousands of amazing and wonderful and strong, powerful people like Joanne in the world. And, you know, the, the more we can share our stories, the more we can uh, break down the stigma of having, you know, bottle that up and just suck it up and move on. And, and we can actually do some healing through it and, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Joanne. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.